Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. We'll be right back to today's show. But before we do, I want to let you know that you can get a free copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, when you leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcast, either on desktop or on your phone. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, look up Think Unbroken, click follow in the top right, and then go and leave a review at the bottom. And when you leave that review, screenshot it and send it over to book.thinkunbroken.com where you can upload your contact and mailing information, and we will send you a free copy of this award-winning, best-selling book, absolutely free, including shipping. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to upload your screenshot review from Apple Podcasts for the Think Unbroken podcast. And until next time, my friend, be unbroken. I'll see you. You're listening to the Think Unbroken podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Unbroken. I'm an author, speaker, coach, and advocate for adult survivors of childhood trauma and abuse. In this podcast, you will learn how to transform your trauma into triumph, turn breakdowns into breakthroughs, and go from victim to being the hero of your own story. You can learn more at thinkunbrokenpodcast.com, and of course, check us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify at Think Unbroken Podcast. Hey, what's up, Unbroken Nation? Hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world today. I'm very excited to be joined with you. Another episode with my guest and friend, Kenneth Nixon. Kenneth, what is going on, my man? How are you today? Doing good. It's Friday. Uh, getting ready to get off work and just try to relax and enjoy the weekend. Yeah, I love that. I would say the same thing, but I, I this weekend's going to be a busy one. Anyway, uh -oh. I, I digress. <laughs> You know, when you and I first connected, the first thing that I thought to myself was, I love the advocacy. I love what you're trying to do and build community. I have a, a vast appreciation for people who are putting in the effort and energy to create change. That's something that you and I are going to get into. And we're going to talk about the importance of, of how it is that you are making these moves in, in the world, in America, in your town. And, and really talk about how other people can as well. And, and I think Kenneth, a lot of people feel like they're unable to contribute because they aren't, you know, president or mayor or city council. And it's like, we're gonna get into some ways that I think will help people. But before we do that, what's one thing that I need to understand about you so that I know who you are as a person? 
Thank you again for having me. And that, that's actually a great question to start off because it's the core of how I introduce myself to individuals when I'm in the community uh, is you can't understand me unless you understand the story of my mother uh, because the two are intertwined. And the work that I do is connected back to that entire journey uh, and to understand what makes me tick and to truly understand me one would have to know the story of my mother. Uh, and that's part of why I do the work that I do, because it's rooted in getting to know people at a deeper level than just service introductions or cursory conversations. So the one thing you, you need to understand, and we'll dive into that, um, to know me, you have to know the story about my mother. Let's hear it. Wonderful. So my mother... Um, uh, was unfortunately uh, has spent her whole life uh, suffering from multiple severe mental illnesses. And I myself have a few that I've been dealing with my whole life to, to this day. Um, but her being uh, trapped in that cycle, unable to function in society as a teenager, as an adult, uh, rendered her incapable of caring for any of her children, myself and my siblings included. Uh, and at the point of my birth, uh, I was born um, uh, in what was called Garfield Apartments, which is in the south side of Arlington, Virginia. Uh, and when I was born, the story of my birth, my mother <clears throat> had wrapped me in newspaper. She had given birth to me on the apartment uh, floor, uh, had wrapped me in newspaper and this is a little graphic, but she had bitten off part the umbilical cord. Uh, and that's how my father found me as he was coming off of work uh, in the apartment. And she was off in uh, the corner of the uh, living room um, with kind of a vacant look as the story was told to me in the middle of uh, a mental health episode. So I was quite literally <laughs> in crisis from the moment of birth. But it's that pivotal start. Uh, is the basis of a lifelong battle, not only of dealing with my own mental health challenges and growing up in an environment with a mother who uh, spent her whole life in cycles of local incarceration, state hospital facilities, uh, drug and rehab facilities, dealing with different types of abuse, both physical and mental, uh, uh, and me being in that environment and having to navigate it uh, as a child and deal with my own insecurities and challenges growing up. Uh, so I always say that my story to understand me, you have to understand the story of my mother. Yeah. I, I actually resonate with a lot of that, you know, for, for me growing up with a mother who was bipolar, narcissistic, uh, addicted to pain prescriptions and alcohol. Uh, it strikes a chord with me. I, I even get a little emotional thinking about it. And that's because as much as we don't get any say in what we're born into, what we are born into creates the foundation for everything that we become. You know, I, I think about these pivotal memories as a child and how so much of my journey has been working through those, trying to understand them, trying to, and probably most importantly, let go, find forgiveness where it finds the space to be applied. What's, what's a childhood memory that you have that has shaped who you are today? 
One memory specifically I have is uh, the moment I can remember as a child where I were finally able to connect that something um, was not all together in terms of my environment, um, interacting with my mother. And I would say I was six years old. Uh, I had to be very aware and develop that sense of awareness at a very young age. I remember sitting at the dining room table. Uh, we were in Arlington at this time, uh, and I was uh, six years old. So at that point, I'm in kindergarten, I believe, kindergarten, first grade, one of those. Uh, and I was sitting at the dining room table, uh, and I was working on something. That was back when they used to give homework. My children don't get homework in elementary school, but uh, that's a foreign concept to them. But uh, I was I was sitting working on a homework assignment. Uh, and it was quiet in there. My other stepbrothers and sisters were still at school. And I just remember this huge thud happening and it shook me. Uh, and it was my mother actually um, kicking through the door of the apartment. Uh, and at the time, I did not know fully who she was uh, because I did not spend significant time that early with her because I was with my father who, who got custody of me at a young age. And I just remember her screaming at the, up the steps, um, looking for my father. My father came down halfway. He didn't come all the way down the steps, but I remember him coming down halfway down the steps and my stepmother um, coming uh, down the steps behind him. And I remember them going back and forth, shouting and cursing at each other. But I didn't understand at the time why my father never fully came down the steps and why he never fully engaged with her just was off as I was growing up. I, I was like, I always wonder, why did he not like fully engage um, someone who had just kicked open his door? I, I didn't understand why. Um, but at a certain point, she stopped and walked directly over to me. And I was frozen. I was gripped with what I know now is anxiety uh, and fear uh, and uh, a couple of other things. And as I sat there, uh, I remember her distinctly reaching over and grabbing the pencil out of my hand and asking me a question to the effect of what, what's two plus two. So I must've been working on a math assignment or, or, or something of that nature. Um, I, I was rendered uh, mute. I could not respond to anything in that moment. I just remember, um, crying and sitting there. Uh, and then at some point she turned around, uh, looked up at my dad, said a few choice words to him. And then she was gone. I didn't see her for like six months after that. Mm. Um, but at that point I just started crying profusely. And I remember my dad, uh, coming down my stepmother uh, trying to console me. Um, and then I remember that because a couple of days later, my dad explained to me fully that that was my actual mother. Uh, and that moment has always stuck with me. The first moment I really what was introduced to trauma in a real way. Yeah, that's, that's a hell of a story, man. You know, I, I think that so actually I know witnessing and bearing witness in my own journey to those moments very similarly. I mean, dude, the impact, I, even today, I still feel, you know, despite the work and despite the coaching and the books and the conferences and the therapy and all of the investment, it's like, What's really interesting is we carry those. If you've ever read Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, so much of that just sits within us and it shapes us, it shapes our reality. But 
one of the really interesting things that that a lot of people don't talk about in conjunction with traumatic experiences is that sometimes you just need one person to create and build resiliency in you by showing you that they love you, that they support you. And I remember once I was sitting and I was like trying to trace back these people who possibly had done this. And what's really surprising is that for me, it was like my coaches and my, my peers at school a lot of the times. Do you feel like with your father, you had that kind of emotional support? Did you, do you think that when you look at the resiliency that's been built in you, especially with what you do now, what, was he kind of a cornerstone in this journey for you, especially with, with that other side of being your mother? Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus. You can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yeah, so this piece is going to get a little nuance for me. Uh, and I, I don't want to go too terribly deep because that can be a three-hour conversation by itself. Sure. Um, but my father, it's, that answer is yes and no. Mm -hmm. uh, I say yes because uh, my, my father was um, big on fulfilling the commitments that you have to family. So my father was that stabilizing force in, in my life. He made sure I never went without clothes or, or food to eat or a roof over my head. Um, from that perspective, I had stability, um, which is critically important in the development of a child, but that stability alone wasn't enough to protect the trauma that was around. Mm. But then my father also had a lot of trauma and things that he had um, carrying with him as a product of uh, a, a broken home. My father grew up in East side Baltimore in the 50s and 60s, the height of, of drugs and violence, the civil rights era. And his father left him when he was nine years old uh, for New York. And he used to always tell me the only thing he remembered his father ever giving him 
was a bike on the day that he got in his car and took off and went to New York. Uh, and he also had his, my father at, at age 16, um, in Baltimore, a bullet due to a drug altercation went through the glass of the home they were living on, on Barclay street and pierced through the couch and killed, uh, my uncle, but at the time, his 12 year old brother oh. who died in my father's arms at the age and my father was 16 years old at the time. Uh, then you fast forward a few years later, a second brother of his died from drug overdose in my father's arms when my father was in his early twenties. So you're talking about someone who grew up with an absent father who had to drop out of high school to help my grandmother uh, support the home, who used alcohol and, and cigarettes as coping mechanisms at a very young age, uh, then had siblings who died in his arm when he was still a child. Uh, and then now he's a father, which means he did not, I did not get any type of, of the type of emotional support because that wasn't accessible to him or he didn't even know how to provide that type of support because he had un, um, diagnosed and, and untreated uh, issues that never got dealt with. But I did inherit some of his bad behaviors when it comes to coping and dealing with trauma and not processing things in a healthy way. So yes, he was a stabilizing force in my life. He gave me something he didn't have, which was a present father. But that other piece of emotional support, how to navigate, how to be resilient um, um, within that type of environment, he did not have the tools or the resources to be able to equip me with that because he did not know how to access it himself. Yeah, that and that is so true for so many people. I mean, that that story is heartbreaking. You know, you, you think about those, you go, that's movie like in some capacity. And then I, I go through my own journey as a kid and, and many of these very, very chaotic movie, like insane circumstances I was, I was a part of. And then you sit in it, you go, actually, it's, it's more common than we think it, it is vastly more common. And when you have so much of this happening in your world, in your life, it becomes the nomenclature for what you think is love and communication, compassion, friendship mentorship, like all of it is encompassed in that. And that's how you arrive at this concept that that has become the cornerstone of my life and my journey, which is generational trauma. You know, you you map this. And Kenneth, I'm, I just look at this, like, I'm so thankful. I really do mean this. I am so thankful for the internet. Because I was through access to information mm -hmm. and learning and data I was able to like start making meaning of these things even deeper, probably more so than than therapy or coaching or many of those aspects, because it gave me the space to kind of study within the nuance like this leads to this leads to this. And then you get to the arrival point in this destination where people like you are, where I would even include myself in where we're making the shift. We've we've kind of said, actually, you know what? I don't like the world this way. I'm going to do something different here. When, when you trace back and you look at this, it's like there are these dominoes that fall, right? There's all these moments in these circumstances in which when I look at my life, it was ultimately arriving at the straw that broke the camel's back that changed things for me. 
And that led down this beautiful path, a very, very difficult path, albeit like, let's not get it twisted. Like it has been a journey, dude. But for you, where did you start to feel like I'm going to do something different? Well, one for me, uh, I have to actually full fast forward to 2019, which is not all that different uh, uh, um, that long ago. Um, when my father passed away from uh, a short but aggressive battle with cancer. Mm. Uh, and even as uh, going into adulthood, I did the things that I thought would help me kind of place things in context, right? I was, when I got out of high school, I thought, okay, let me go and find, because I had lost touch uh, um, for a few years because uh, there was a lot of anger and, and and resentment and bitterness of how my childhood unfolded. And I didn't want any communication for a few years. Uh, but I said, well, let me go find my mother and my grandfather and my brothers and so forth and go on this journey or what, what is essentially I thought was going to be a healing journey. Uh, and I got some questions that I want to ask and there's answers that I want, right? It's still that that teenager, I'm an adult, but still a teenager, childish, like, like mm. I deserve answers and I'm going to find out my answers. And I went on this journey and I came away empty, not really, um, understanding the big picture of, of how everyone fits in this puzzle of life and the things that they had to grapple with. Right. It was very me focused which in some aspects makes sense when you're the one uh, feeling the trauma, feeling the, the anger and having to live it. But it was very me focused. Uh, and then you fast forward to 2019 and my father passes away. And now the one person, the one person who was the stabilizing force in my life, like 2019, I'm, I'm married. I have children. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I'm living this, this, this life that I built for myself and that, I, that I'm good, right? I have my whole unit. But when my father passed away, it hit like a ton of bricks, the depression, the anxiety, the one stabilizing force that unconsciously I probably thought I would never have to lose was taken away from me. All the trauma, even though I didn't have that emotional component, it was still a consistency in there. And with him being gone, my whole world shifted. Um, I honestly did not know what to do. And I tell people all the time, um, I am grateful that, that God blessed me with a wife and children. Because knowing that I had, and this is the, the thing that I'm thankful for my father too, because he was so consistent. Um, in, in providing, doing the things that a parent should do, that I kept getting up every day because I had an obligation and a responsibility to my children and to my wife. And having that sense that that's what my father passed to me, if I did not have that, I probably would have gone into a deeper depression uh, and struggled with some, some things much deeper but it was at that moment I was able to take a step back and with that blanket, because it was like a security blanket 
being torn away, um, for me to say, there has to be something so much deeper that I have not dealt with in terms of helping to support my family in ways that they may not even be capable of doing it. But I've been too selfish. And this is just me talking. This is, this is me personally that I felt um, that, that I was too selfish to think, not think beyond just myself. Uh, and think more broadly about not only the environment and the people, but the systems and lack of their own um, that are surrounding uh, my family at the time. I, I feel most people can resonate in this concept of feeling selfish. And if you really narrow down, I mean, like, you know, if you study this long enough and you look at human psychology and you can map out our behavioral patterns, our autonomic responses, especially when we are in constant flight or flight, which obviously a loss of any capacity, chaos in the home, right? These things lead down this pathway. Really, that selfishness is self-preservation. Now, until you're studious of who it is that you are, and you become conscious of who you are, that's something that you don't understand, right? I, I'm speaking yeah. through my own lens on this because when I look at some of these really awful some moments uh, in my late teens and my 20s, these, these choices, these decisions that I made, I didn't realize that they were, honestly, I didn't even realize they were hurting other people. I just thought I was taking care of myself. Now, taking care of myself was very chaotic at the time. So let me yeah. be very clear about that. But I was like, this is what it means. Like, mm -hmm. no, one else, no one else has my back. The people that do, they're a little bit off their rocker, right? So if I don't do this for me, no one's going to. And then you come to find, okay, wait a second. This isn't love. This isn't compassion. This isn't how you build the foundation of something beautiful. And, and it was in that that I realized actually what I need to do is step into the discomfort of seeking the healing. And, and that was so incredibly, incredibly difficult. And part of that discomfort, arguably, probably the hardest part was reconciliation. I'm not even going to label it as forgiveness. And, and the reason I say that, Kenneth, is because for me, I think about how does one forgive their mother when their mother cuts their finger off, right? That's a thing I will carry with me. But I've reconciled it. I've just sat in and I go, that's my reality. Not the reality that I wish existed, right? But the reality that I'm actually in. But I started to understand forgiveness. And I understand more so and more deeply how it was really a necessity for this journey. And I was able to forgive people like my grandmother, forgive people like in my life who even to this day, I don't really want to name. But I was able to add forgiveness for them and then for myself. When I did that, that led down the path of compassion, self-love. And actually, the, the thing you mentioned, which is something I did not understand at all, was showing up even on the hard days. And so I'm wondering, what, what was something that you had to forgive? What was an experience for you where you're like, I have to do this so I can break free? So I... I, I... The way you just put it um, hit the nail right on the head. For, for me, forgiveness in my context was always for myself uh, because I don't know that 
I can ever get to the place of accepting and being willing to fully acknowledge some of the intentional hurts and traumas that the adults in my life inflicted and did not consciously um, work to alleviate. Mm. But forgiveness unlocks the power that that trauma and those circumstances had on me and prevented me from moving forward uh, to be able to live a more healthy, productive life and not trapped and beholden to those certain things. Uh, so for me, uh, forgiveness allows me to not necessarily forget or to ever get to a place where it doesn't inform how I interact with uh, some of my family or other people in my life, especially during those periods. Um, but it really allowed me to be on a path of healing uh, that put me on a platform of empowerment um, because I'm at a place now where I can freely tell my story um, because it is transformed uh, for me to something that I utilize as uh, a, a balm almost uh, for the advocacy work that I do to say, here is my story and here is why I'm involved in the work that I do. Uh, and it gives me access uh, to be able to let people know that they're not alone, that they're not unique. Their circumstances may feel unique and it may feel personal. And in a lot of ways it is, um, but that there are those out there uh, who are able to share their story. So people feel that there is a safe space to not only access some of their internal power or healing process, but if you feel led to actually do something to help others potentially avoid the same circumstances, uh, then there's a path to that as well. I think the path to that only exists in reconciliation and forgiveness. You know, what the, the crux of this show of Think Unbroken of everything that I've been working on is, is like transform trauma into triumph, right? We, I think we have a moral obligation. I really do. Like, I don't necessarily mean at this scale and certainly not for everyone. This is a path that... I kind of was like walking down the forest path and I just fell into a rabbit hole. Like I never saw this coming, but it just made sense to me. I was like, here we are. How do we use the voices of, of those who have been through incredibly painful events and allow them to share their story and their journey, right? And that platform, it doesn't have to be this. It's, it's in your own home, first and foremost, with your friends, with your neighbors, your peers, your church, your community. and and I think that you have to get there by first forgiving yourself, right? I, I mean, dude, I've done some, like, I don't even know that I want to even say publicly. I'm like, I will go to prison <laughs> still, but like, I don't know where the statues of limitations are in some things. And I'm just, and I'm just like, I, I had to sit and do the work. Yeah. And I had to show up for my, I had to forgive myself. And, and that is one of those things that is so incredibly difficult because often we destroy ourselves independently and individually far more dangerously than anyone else who hurts us. What was forgiving yourself in this journey like? 
Well, for for me, right? So let's think. So there were so many people. My, my stepmother, my aunts, my uncles, anyone who who had a cursory understanding of what was going on, but did nothing. Yeah. Um, I had to tap into some forgiveness uh, of of them in order to get to a place to forgive myself. Right. For me. That anger and everything that was built up, it became a wall um, that until I was able to uh, forgive people, I couldn't access forgiveness for myself, right? Forgiving myself for not grieving, forgiving myself for being afraid to cry, like this false mm. sense of masculinity that, that I, I should not cry, that I have to suck it up and tough it out. Um, uh, forgiving myself for not having enough curiosity. And what I mean by curiosity uh, is being curious about who am I? Who am I trying to become? Like, why am I here? What is the purpose of all of this if I can't find my identity as I progress out of this? Uh, so forgiveness uh, for me was multifaceted, but um, I had to get to the place where I allowed myself to, you know what? It's okay for me not to be okay. It's okay for me not to be okay. It's okay for me to be angry. It's okay for, for me to go through different levels of emotion from anger to sadness to frustration um, because that's all a part of, of, of being human and forgetting myself for not allowing the wholeness of who I am to feel those emotions in a deep way, and then being able to wrestle with them, right? Because if you don't feel your emotions and allow your body to relieve anxiety through crying and through some of the natural processes, you can't fully wrestle with, well, why am I feeling this way? Why am I crying right now? What is it that, that's within me that is being released? And how I manifest this in a way that gets me to a better place of forgiveness, but also a better place of healing. Yeah. That release is something else, man. You know, I, I, we hold on so tightly and especially as men and, and men of color who grow up in these environments where, mm -hmm. I mean, you go look at the statistics, child abuse is so much more prevalent and predominant in low income communities of color. And, and it's like, we are, we are taught don't cry, don't laugh, don't exist, like just go shut the f up and stand in that corner and be silent and invisible. And then we go find the ways to be seen. And here's what's really interesting about those ways we find to be seen. A lot of times they're pretty dangerous. They're, they're yeah, pretty yeah. like in, incredibly harmful and hurtful ways to not only ourselves, but our, our own communities, our own families, our own friends, our own relationships. And, and I think a part of that is it's, it's just, it is systemic. Like, I don't care what anybody says, like in a lot of ways, your zip code is a better indicator of yeah. success in your life than anything else. And so my hope is when people hear this, they, they recognize and they understand one un you cannot negotiate with what I'm about to say, cause it is just fact boys who grow up like we grew up, do not make it statistically, right? They just do not. And so, you know, we're not outliers. We've been in trouble. We've done some things, right? 
Maybe we just got a little bit lucky than the guy next to us, but I've been in handcuffs more times than I can count. I'm I'm here by the sure will of God, spirit, universe, mother nature. I don't know, brother. But I, I think about the importance of having intention in my life now. And I think this is the thing that most people miss. Most people who go through trauma, through abuse, and I'm not even talking about even just the people who grew up in places like we grew up. I just mean in general, across the board, they don't really, you said something so important. They don't realize that they're allowed to discover who they are. They don't realize that they're allowed to have the curiosity about becoming themselves. Where do you begin on that? Like, what was the starting point for you? So you just mentioning that uh, those who don't make it, um, that actually is a starting point. And I, I say why, because I have perfect examples in, in the sense that both of my brothers, so with my mother, um, had four children. I'm the youngest of her four children. Uh, I have two older brothers and an older sister. My two older brothers to this day are still wrestling with substance abuse in and out of incarceration for, for bad and poor decisions. I have an older brother that's still incarcerated right now. My oldest brother, uh, he just, uh, got out of incarceration in 2021 after 13 years for some of the decisions he's made. And he's now trying to rediscover himself and figure out how does he be a father to his adult daughter who has children. So he's a grandfather now, right? A whole life has passed him. I have my older sister who, uh, unfortunately because of her mental health challenges and her other challenges, um, could not care for her children and they ended up in foster care. Uh, so I've always wrestled with this, uh, sense of um, anxiety around, of how did I not end up in the same circumstances as my siblings? I made poor decisions as them. I had the same opportunity, uh, uh, um, uh, as, as, as they had in terms of slipping through the cracks. Um, but they didn't make it. And they're still trying to fight just to keep their head above water today. And we're talking about folks in their 40s and 50s, right? Uh, that they're still trying to fight to keep their head above water. And for me, that was a, a red herring, so to speak, in me having the opportunity to be able to not only shift the dynamic in my life, but be intentional in, in the work that I do and how I go about life, because I may be the only chance that they have, um, uh, to get some sense of peace or normalcy, but knowing that this is so much bigger than just my family unit, that the systems, the systemic things that, that impact someone's ability to just be foundationally functional, like uh, uh, um, uh, housing uh, over, over their head, that's stable, uh, a healthy environment in which, uh, they can access, uh, services that, that are needed to support them, uh, in their, 
various illnesses and, and ailments. And being intentional, really thinking about in these moments, how do I be intentional to protect my peace and protect my mental health and continue on the treatment path that I'm on so I can be healthy enough to be a positive force to impact my family's life and others. Mm. Yeah. And, and so much of it really comes into this idea that I think we feel these calls, right? I feel this even within myself. And again, I, I don't really know where this whole think unbroken thing came from other than it felt like that is what I'm supposed to do. And, and to leverage my experiences of the past and say, look, I get it. I, I'm never like, yes, I teach, I coach, I instruct, I write books, I lay out the practical how to blah, blah, blah. But so much of it has just been, I know what it's like to be there. And this is what I did to get out. This is what I did to create the change. And, and so much of it is the internal shift, the internal aspect of, I want something different and allowing yourself that something different. Because as much as we wish that the people around us would, would follow suit, most of the time they're not. I remember I was listening to this podcast with um, Ed Milet, and Ed created this massive, massive company worth hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars. Grew up with an alcoholic, abusive father, got beat up all the time, was bullied, the whole thing, right? He said something, Kenneth, that made me think of you. He says, in every single family, there's the one, the one, the person who makes the decision to heed the call and to go and create change. And a big part of your journey has been that. And I would love for you to talk about what that call has been for you and, and what your mission today is. Yeah, so, and, and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, I never looked at it in that light until you uh, just mentioned uh, it in that fashion. So thank you. Thank you for that again. So in my reflection time, I'm actually going to wrestle with that a, a little bit. Uh, but what got me on this path, I go back to the curiosity. I really wanted to dig into how is it possible that um, my mother never got into any semblance of stability in her life where she um, had what I would coin as a, a thriving, healthy life. And as I began to do research uh, of her history, uh, with the criminal justice system, I noticed uh, at one point, and I really focused on the periods where she was absent a lot and I didn't know where she was at. So I focused on the period of 1989 uh, through uh, about 1994. And what I found was really astonishing that 37 times, 37 times, between 1989 and 1994 in Arlington County, because uh, that's where I focused in Arlington County, Virginia, my mother was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct, disturbing the peace, public intoxication, possession of drugs, assault and battery, 
and the list goes on and on. And it was just this cycle, but they were no pros her, which means they would dismiss it, but the charges weren't dropped. So each time that they kept this vicious cycle going where she would be charged, no pros released back into the community. Occasionally she would end up in a state hospital facility where they would stabilize her and then release her back into the community. Or law enforcement would pick her up and take her to the uh, local emergency room where she would be zip tied to a gurney until mm -hmm. an open bed came up somewhere in the state. And that could be four hours. That could be six days. And it just this vicious cycle of local incarceration and state hospitalization, um, but no continued care, no real intentional or intentionality in an approach to get her to a place of being able to support her life, even if she had wraparound support to get her to be more stable. And at that point, it really helped me un understand that we have a system, particularly in this country, uh, that criminalizes mental illness. Uh, when you break your arm or you are really sick, uh, an EMT is who comes to your front door. When it's an illness of the mind and someone calls 911, you have an armed law enforcement person that shows up at your door. And in very uh, serious circumstances, that can end up with that person who have untrained uh, law enforcement officers who are going into a situation that they don't fully understand and they're assessing dangers and having to make snap judgments and decisions instead of this issue being in a healthcare uh, context. So that's led me down this path of how do we get to the place that we decouple the criminal justice system being so intertwined with mental health and mental illness and put in place a humane system of treatment that gets people on the path of treatment and stability and not in the criminal justice system. So then how do we do that, right? The, the reason I ask is, you know, I, I trace back very much similarly, my mother would disappear for weeks at a time, who knows where, um, multiple times getting arrested for drinking and driving. And they would just let her out. I remember one time I was in the car with her. It was me and my little brothers. We were coming home from church. She was always intoxicated. And we were at a night service. It was weird because she would go to church and be wasted, right? And like nobody ever said anything. I was like, what is happening right now? It felt so insane to me. And we get pulled over. She gets towed in to, and we get put in the squad car. My little brothers and I were like seven, eight years old. We're freaking out, obviously. And we were in the police station for like two hours, three hours, and they let her go. And this happened again and again and again. And, and I do think about this quite frequently, how when someone is having a mental health issue, the first response is armed officers. Like, and my brain, I go, that doesn't make sense. And, and we know, and we see this constantly, these guys are having to make snap decisions. People's lives are lost, right? I, I, I'm, I'm hard pressed to say, I know the statistics, so I will not, but I know that there is an impact of that. 
So what are the changes? What is the advocacy? What is it that you're trying to do? And what can other people do to assist you in this mission? Yes, that's a, a great um, segue uh, to talk about this. Well, the first thing is the advent of the 988 number to start to try to get society to move away from dialing 911 and move towards uh, what is now in place in 988 number. And it's in place, I believe, in 28 states now, and it's expanding to others. Uh, and it's uh, the new national um, suicide and mental health prevention uh, number uh, that is launched. And it gives uh, community members, family members, the opportunity to have a single easy to remember number for anyone who is experiencing a mental health crisis or contemplating suicide. Uh, and I think suicide, mm -hmm. and not I think, but I know as well as you know, that suicide is a major public health issue yes. in, in the United States. And there are tens of thousands of deaths a year just off of uh, suicide alone. And the idea that you can have a 988 number uh, that is similar to 911 to get people uh, uh, to someone who can potentially talk to them and dispatch resources to be with them is critically important as we're trying to deal with uh, the mental health crisis in this country. So the first thing I would say for people to do is to understand that there is a 988 number out there that they can call uh, in lieu of, of law enforcement being the first uh, folks that you decide to call uh, to get someone that they can talk to and uh, kind of help diagnose what type of response that individual needs. Uh, but second to that is uh, really starting to educate yourselves on what is called the Crisis Now model, uh, which uh, in in combination with the uh, federal uh, agencies and uh, other uh, nonprofit organizations, they put to out and put together a model called the Crisis Now model, which is an innovative approach uh, to crisis response that seeks to improve. Uh, the outcomes of those who are experiencing mental health or substance abuse issues. Uh, and the, the traditional response historically has been inadequate, right? And that's armed law enforcement and local jails. And one of the things I always want people to recognize as you're looking to dig in, I always ask uh, those who are uh, looking to get into advocacy, can you tell me what the largest mental health treatment facilities are in the United States right now. And jails. they're jails. Jails are the largest mental health treatment facilities in this country right now. And, and that's something that we fundamentally know is wrong and that we have to change. And with the crisis now model, what that does, and you can look at Tempe, Arizona, you can look at San Antonio, Texas, uh, you, uh, Virginia is starting to implement uh, some of this model. It involves a network of community-based crisis services, including hotlines, mobile crisis teams, and crisis stabilization centers. Uh, and these services are designed specifically to provide immediate trauma-informed care for individuals uh, that, that are in crisis. And the goal is to help them stabilize and avoid unnecessary hospitalizations 
or other forms of institutionalization. Uh, so that's like the 10,000 foot overview, but the practicality of getting that implemented uh, requires significant power. And I use the word powers for a reason because any program or system like this requires dedicated ongoing resources and funding. And for those who are elected or in positions to make that happen, to actually commit to it. So one of the things that I've always um, advocated on is for those who are impacted or a part of the mental health community or are looking for ways to get involved is to find the people with similar or like-minded uh, thinking on this issue who have stories that can come together to create what I call collective power. Uh, and collective power uh, has a component of organized people uh, to come together to really compel your local governments and the state to put resources uh, towards building crisis receiving centers uh, to supplement uh, the 988 suicide number, um, but also put money into mobile crisis teams that you can have an alternative to dispatch to people in crisis that they get a therapist uh, and other counselors as a response to their situation and not always on uh, law enforcement. And the kicker here is, is that the stories and the power of people coming together uh, to affect change on this issue will move things much more quickly uh, than people realize. Uh, because on this particular issue, it not only is a moral issue, but if you're trying to talk just pure pocketbook, just pocketbook, putting in place crisis receiving centers where people can go to for 23-hour treatment or three to five short stays to get intensive inpatient treatment, you're reducing the cost that it's required to run and operate a local jail. You're reducing the cost and the burden on local emergency rooms. You're reducing the need for law enforcement to respond to mental health calls, uh, and they can be getting back to doing public safety. Uh, and in Maricopa County, Tempe, Arizona, they uh, put out a report that showed when they fully implemented the uh, crisis now model, which means they have mobile crisis, they have the crisis receiving center, they saved over 47 full-time equivalent police officers who were just dedicated to responding to uh, emergency mental health calls. They saved uh, over $100 million in uh, uh, expenses that would have gone to local jails and hospitals for individuals going to that. And they saved uh, millions of dollars uh, uh, that would go uh, into having uh, law enforcement transport people across the state to various hospitals or being dedicated to those individuals. So on this issue, our community, and I call it a community because we have to be intentional in building deep personal relationships, we have the power to create systemic change necessary to actually transform lives. Um, but we have to do it collectively together. Uh, and 
there are resources out there for people to not only connect with like-minded individuals, but also begin to advocate for the full implementation of the Crisis Now model across this country. And we start moving people on the path of treatment and begin decriminalizing mental illness. Man, I hope people will go back and listen to everything you just said again. And, and when you, I knew the answer was jail because I have witnessed it time and time and time and time again. Most people don't know that. And I, I am assuming that's going to blow some people's minds. I want folks to be able to, to get in contact with you and to connect with you. Um, before I ask you my last question, my friend, where can everyone find you? So people can find me on social media, on uh, Instagram at Kenneth underscore Nixon Jr. on Instagram, or they can visit um, my website at authorkennethnixon.com, um, where you can uh, uh, tap into my mental health blog, um, but also reach out to me uh, if you want to get involved in advocacy work. Yeah, and I certainly hope people do. This is, I mean, we're talking about people having the the potential and the opportunity to heed the call and to step into being the one. And sometimes the one leads to the many, right? And so I, I hope people will do that. Unbroken Nation, make sure that you go to thinkunbrokenpodcast.com. Check out this episode with Kenneth because we will have all the links in the show notes for you to go follow and get connected with Kenneth. My friend, my last question for you. What does it mean to you to be unbroken? Thank you for that question. And again, thank you for, for having me on, on here. But for me, um, to be unbroken means that I have un, uh, endured hardships, I've endured challenges, but I'm not defeated, nor am I permanently damaged. The pain and trauma that uh, I've felt that I deal with, that I see people deal with, it's still with me, but to be unbroken means I'm a person that's faced adversity and has come out on the other side with the spirit to fight back. I feel that. My friend, thank you so much for being here. Unbroken Nation, thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, comment, share, tell a friend. And when you share this, remember, every single time that you do, you're helping us move forward in our missions to end generational trauma transform trauma to triumph, breakdowns to breakthroughs, and you're helping someone who you may never meet be the hero of their own story. And until next time, my friends, be unbroken. I'll see ya. Thank you so much for listening to Think Unbroken. Please share this episode with someone who could use it and help us move forward in our mission of ending generational trauma in our lifetime. And if you would, please take five seconds to pop on iTunes or Spotify, hit that five star, leave a review. And you can also reach out to us on social at Michael Unbroken or at Think Unbroken. And of course, you can check out our YouTube channel at Think Unbroken. Thank you for being a part of Unbroken Nation, my friends. And until next time, be unbroken. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show. But I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. 
I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.